Out From Work Podcast. My name's Dave Swillam. Let's get ready to hustle. Welcome back to the Waking Up From Work podcast. You're listening to episode 130 of the show tonight. This is your host, Dave Swalom. This is where we get to work, making work a passion, living life creative full-time, where we interview artists, entrepreneurs, musicians, creatives, and people pursuing alternative lives than what we think that we might have to do, but maybe we don't. So this is where we talk about that stuff and I've been doing some back-to-back interviews on Thursdays. I'm kind of like trying to control my own life a little bit better and like get some of this in backlog because I've just been riding the podcast. So it's been actually even more fun on Thursdays, like interviewing more people than I normally would, which would just be one. And hearing the perspectives like right next to each other has been a different perspective for me. So I was just talking to this gentleman before the show. Really funny because... When the show started geographically, I just spoke to people that I knew that were doing things that were interesting to me or doing something past me or, uh, you know, something I wanted to know more about. And I was interviewing people in New Hampshire at the time or Boston or wherever. And then as the show has gone on, we're at episode 130 right now. It's been three years of my life. I've been growing as a person, getting out of my shell and meeting people like crazy and interviewing like crazy. And so I'm, I'm very used to interviewing people from different countries, different states, wherever. And it was funny because I came across this gentleman right here who lives in Portland, Maine, which is now 20 minutes from my house. But we didn't start by finding it geographically. We connected on creative and on story and what should be shared on the show. And he happened to live in Portland. So Really cool to land full circle back in my lap here. I've got Dave Norman, who is a writer. He's a photographer and also a blogger is a new portion of his life. And I think speaker as well, which is a portion that he's going into. Coming from a background, which was something that I I told him has never been on the show where he was a writer following paintball, which I didn't tell you about before the show with banter. Dave, but I didn't play paintball hardcore. I did go to like some ranges, like some actual competitions and like get into it, but not like you did. But I was pretty hardcore in airsoft. And I also did World War II reenacting. And I, I got pretty fair into some of those things. And I was, I was out there. Like I was, you know, I had the gas mask, I was throwing smoke grenades in and coming in with my shotgun. And like I was legit, man. Like I had some good gear on and stuff. And you know, I respect the shit out of that and had so much fun as a kid. And I'm praying to God that any kids that I have in my life somehow get into shooting shit so I can play around with it. You know, <laughs> it's good to have you on the show, man. It's good to have another Mainer on here. And welcome to the Waking Up From Work podcast, man. Glad to have Thank you today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, in a minute or two, I've got a story that brings World War II reenacting and paintball together set in Moscow, Russia, but I don't oh, think we should just God. dive into that out of the gates. Oh, my heart. You have it, dude. <laughs> right. You have it. <laughs> Working by World War II with paintball, I would just be in a really happy place. So <laughs> there you go. Unless people think we're going to be talking about that all the time here. My background as a freelance writer started writing for my local hometown newspaper and very quickly got into writing for paintball magazines. Hmm. Which is why before the show, Dave and I have been talking about my uh, work in the paintball industry, writing for magazines and all. Yeah. 
just like it sounds like you were, I got a taste of it, a little bit of paintball, a little bit of airsoft, and I wanted to do more. And as a kid, really soon, doing more of the thing that I loved meant spending way more money than what I had and more than I can get out of my parents and more than I could like mow yards. Totally. I got to find a way to make this pay for itself. So I turned to my writing because I was writing for the hometown news- newspaper and said, okay, if I write about this local paintball field, maybe they'll let me play for free for the afternoon. And Whoa. I'll, and I'll get 30 bucks for the article from the newspaper. Okay. So I made some contacts there and the local field was like, oh, this is great. You're cool. Come back next weekend. We're having a tournament. I said, oh, you want me to cover the tournament? <laughs> they said, well, yeah, but also we have the editors of Action Pursuit Games magazine, which at the time was the biggest magazine in paintball. Like yeah. we're having them come over. They're personal friends of ours. If you're a writer and a paintball player, you should talk to them. And immediately I was like, yes, two of the things I really love, paintball yeah, yeah. And writing. And they could probably pay me to write about paintball. Maybe this is a way that I can subsidize. These are the two things I, I like. I want to do both of these things. Yes. I can do both of these things together and be good at both of the things. Yeah. Hit me up. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, 18, 19 year old me at the time was just like, I don't expect to be making a living at this. But if I can make it pay for itself, game on, because there's no other way that I can play as much as I want to. That was a really cool kind of synergistic moment. And that launched, I was with Action Pursuit Games from that time until they folded just a number of years ago. I was with them probably 12 or 13 years. Holy shit. So right at that time, that first tournament, did you get in with them? I did. Time? Yeah, I showed up. I right away, 18, 19, boom, in, and then 12 or 13 years out. Exactly right. Damn. <laughs> You're never too young to take a, you know, a flying jump at the thing that you love and just see where you land. At the very least, if it's something that you love and are passionate about, you're going to land among your people and they're going to take care of you somehow. Maybe mm. that's a plate of barbecue. Maybe that's a job that sustains you for like 13 years. I don't know. but Wow. Yeah, you won't no, know that, until you jump. That quote was like hit, man. Like that. I've never heard someone say that before. Like you land among your people and no matter what, they're going to take care of you. That's like, that's an awesome quote. I'm going to put that down in the show notes here. Rock on cool. How much longer do we have to go? Because uh, I think that was me peaking right there. That was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get to my story about Moscow. <laughs> no. Oh uh, my God. So, okay. All right. So, I want to like slow it down a little bit because so, so basically you're 18 or 19 and you got into writing, forget paintball first, you get into writing first. That was like your first job or like, how did that happen? How did writing start for you? Uh, I've been writing ever since I was a little kid. You know, I remember the whole, as a kid, your parents read your stories. And then after they go to bed, you like get a flashlight and you read more stories by flashlight, or maybe it's comics that you're into. Yeah. For me, that was cool. Books go down, pad of paper and pen come out and I'd start writing my own stories. Hmm. So I've just been a writer for my whole life ever since literally like stealing time away from bedtime. And then when I got into, uh, when I got into, my very first year at college, I'd been writing and just sending emails and essays and whatnot to whoever I thought would read them. And I went deer hunting for the very first time. I don't come from a background of hunters at all, but for yeah. whatever reason, I got it in my head. I wanted to hunt and I didn't know what I was doing. So I got the licenses. I bought what gear I thought I needed from you know, secondhand shops. And I went How old were you? Woods. How old were you? 18. Okay. Just turned 18. And I go out in the woods. This is in 
central Missouri at the time. And I don't know what I'm doing. I get wicked cold. I'm having a bad time. I try to, you know, relieve myself in the woods. I'm wearing seven layers of thermal under things. Things are not happening. <laughs> I, I, I get back to where I'm staying, right? I'm like, this is just, ah. And so as stress relief, I write this essay about trying to take a leak in the woods while wearing seven layers of under, under things. <laughs> things are not effective. Right, exactly. This is not working. And I send that to <laughs> everyone that I think will get a kick out of it, including, of course, my mom, because I have a wonderful set of parents. Yeah. A couple months later, they're like, hey, so summer vacation's coming up. Are you thinking about getting a job other than mowing yards? I'm like, yeah, but I don't know what. My mom's like, well, conveniently. I've got an interview lined up for you at the local newspaper. I think they'd like your writing. Wow. I said, how did you score that? I know it's just a small town newspaper, but still like out of nowhere, mom, how'd you do this? Because remember that essay that you wrote about peeing in wintertime? I printed it out. I took it to the editor and they want to meet you next week. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Mom. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed. Don't give me a job interview from pee. Exactly. Right. But yeah, they, they hired me to do a piece that was not about peeing in the woods and they liked it. So they kept me around long enough for me to pitch them articles on the local paintball scene and other things that I was into. Dang. And so they, they ate it up. Okay. So you get in that way and you're writing and now yeah. you're writing as your job. Yeah. And then you are just getting naturally into paintball on the side mm-hmm. anyway. And you were just interested in like, what's up with the field? Like I like paintball. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There were two fields in my hometown and I thought, okay, this is cool to be at this field that like takes me in and introduces me to their friends and magazines. But to get some actual like journalistic perspective, I know there's another field across town. I should go talk to them too. So it's not, you know, totally biased. Right. Talk to both fields that way. And yeah, I ended up getting more contacts going that way. They invited me to come out to events. They gave me their big long list of events. This is before the internet was really a thing for posting event schedules. Like here is a flyer. We hope to see you at some of these events. Wow. So then I talked to the local hometown newspaper and they pushed back after the first article. They said, this is really cool, but we're not a paintball newspaper. We cover school board meetings and all newspaper. Yeah, exactly. But I'm like, wait a minute, Paintball Magazine. So I, I pitched them ideas, and that's how I learned how to pitch articles. Hmm. No, I, I was in college as an undergrad psychology major at the time. No hmm. one had taught me how to pitch articles. Yeah. No one taught me how to you know, look at mastheads and figure out who was doing what and which emails to get and what phone number. No one taught me any of that, except for these two people that I met through connections that worked at the magazine took me under their wing. Their names are Dan Reeves and Jessica Sparks. I owe where I am in life to that huge transitional period that they put together for me. Damn. And they taught me, this is how you pitch articles. This is how you find out who to talk to. This is how to make Hmm. your travel pay for itself because their magazine didn't have a budget to pay freelancers to do anything. Like we'll buy your article. If you take your own photos, we'll buy those too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to hit us up for a hotel? No, 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 no. I can't do that. Can't do that. Right. Right. But then they also taught me like, okay, you're going to go to this event. And while you're there, look at how people do their tactics for this kind of a field. Is it a woods ball field? Is it? And then they got down to the minutia of the, what the people were doing inside of this thing that I really cared about. Like, yeah, I understand this level of this weird thing that I'm into. And now I can see how I can write about this aspect and that facet. And here are the movers and the shakers. Let me go shake their hand and say, hi, can I do a one page profile on you? 
because a one-page profile is worth $125. I don't tell them that. But I'm thinking, all right, I'm at this event. This event is a $250 article. That's a $125 profile mm. on a person who's here. By the time I'm done getting these ideas together, now I've paid for my gas, food, I sleep out the back of my pickup truck, and now I've also got some rent money. Now we're talking. And from there, I was able to spin it up into something that actually became sustaining after college. Interesting. There's a lot of things I like about that that I want to break apart. And there's some questions that I have too, where first of all, so smart. And I love how you very quickly found a way to like, you're piecing together. Like, how do I, this is the things that I love, right? Like Mm -hmm. I love writing. I love paintball. And then those intersect, boom, that happens. Job from the freelance career of happening from that. So you've, you've taken the things that you're passionate about and they've intersected, that's happening. Then you're taking the things that have intersected and you're saying, how can I monetize this to be able to survive in this climate based off of the way that the game is played? And you're like, okay, I'm going to go to these events. I'm going to piece these together and, and come up with that. What was your process, I guess, like really quickly, what was your process for attacking that? Because I think that's a problem that a lot of people have where they have something they're passionate about but they don't think that way of like, how do I take like the 250 here, the 150 here? Like you're still, you're enjoying all of that. You, you enjoy all of it. You're having a fun time. You're like, I'm writing, I'm at the paintball event. I'm meeting the person that's important in paintball. Like all this is cool shit to you. You're just finding out how do I put a price tag on these and then form this up to be the freelance piece. What would be some advice for people that might be stuck where they they've found the intersection, but they haven't started to look at it in the right way. What was that view for you? How did that shape? Yeah, first, don't get daunted by the real compressed version of the story that I just told. There's quite a learning curve for me. It took me a while to figure out these pieces. And finding the right mentors were critical. And those mentors were Dan Reeves and Jessica Sparks. And yeah, they helped me kind of figure out the different moving pieces. I wasn't able to value my time because I could ask for the man in the moon and they wouldn't have been able to pay it. Right. What they could pay, they kind of laid out for me and said, all right, this is what a feature is worth. This is what a profile is worth. Since their world was the magazine, they had a budget that paid for different things. And once I started showing my interest to them and my ability to them and the readiness to take basically whatever was meaningful to our readers, I said, all right, cool. Here are what the individual pieces are worth. Let's talk about how you can put those together. Wow. Once I started getting those ideas, I said, all right, now on my own, here are my ideas. And so each time that I went to an event, I would think, all right, how many profiles can I get based on interesting and different people who are here? How many different how-to articles can I write? How many different gear reviews can I take pictures of? You know, they'd send me gear to review, which is a dream in and of itself. I mean, like, I need pictures of people using this new whiz-bang whatever. I'll take it to an event. I'll put it in the hands of someone who I think would be really compelling. So I'd find a 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid who's playing and give them a $2,000 paintball gun. Be like, I want to take pictures of you exploring the game with this particular paintball gun, this piece of equipment. Wow. Wow. Because I'm going to do my science of this is how it works. I'm going to take it apart. I'm going to take all the photos. But I need someone else's perspective and I need pictures of somebody else holding it. And then from that conversation with that person, I kind of figure out what else is going on. Like, ah, who'd you come with? What team are you on? What are you doing? Yeah, and yeah, a lot yeah. of the events that I was covering were what they call scenario paintball, where people go and they play storylines. Say, okay, you know, the person I just handed this big expensive piece of gear. First, I need it back because I got to send it back. Please. 
But second, uh, let me follow you around as you do your thing and tell me what your thing is. And I'm going to write about it. And that's going to go into my article. So yeah, it's like if I'm the player, if someone comes up to me and they're like, hey, you've got like a $200 piece of crap gun. Do you want to use a $2,000 gun? I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't care what you're doing, dude. You do you. <laughs> you take pictures of the back of my head. You write and say that I'm an idiot. I'm going to go crush this shit with this $2,000 gun, right? <laughs> oh, it's an easy way to make yeah. friends. <laughs> Everyone's good to go there, you know? <laughs> it's like, this isn't being released for three more months. You want to play with it? Yeah, I'm like, cool. Just yes. show yes. me where your team is first. <laughs> Dangle the carrot. Exactly. Dangle the carrot. Tell me how the tactics are. Okay. Yeah. So like me sitting here thinking about this, like what could someone who doesn't give a toss about paintball take away from that for the things that they are into, whether that's you know, motocross or martial arts or scuba diving or whatever it is that really makes you come alive, that really gets your interest. I'm thinking, yeah, just find the people who are making things happen in that industry, whether it's going down to Dragon Con or you know going on actually doing scuba diving, martial arts, whatever. Go to conventions, go to classes, go to trade shows, whatever you can find. Be like, cool, where, where are my people? Yes. Fit. Like here's a room, a field or whatever, full of my community, but who are my people doing things that are accessible to me? And for me, yeah. that was writing for magazines cool, or other people that could be, you know, whatever it might be for them. Maybe finding a company that travels to all of these spaces and be like, dude, can I run your merch table? Maybe running a merch table is a way to get into that community and then explore your creativity that way. You know, find people who are doing stuff. Love it. Talk to them. Add value. Yes, that is it. Add value for free. I guess that's what I was doing. I was adding value in the magazine. Yeah, totally, man. That's, oh my God, that's so good. So like you basically figured out the background through these mentors or through being in the scene of like, okay, these are the mechanics. People that don't take a second to kind of dismantle it and see like, how does this work, right? They might listen to that person and be like, I'm not going to pay for your hotel. I'm not going to pay for whatever. And then they they take that rejection or they take that challenge and they just immediately either try to go through it or they go like, I'm out. But mm-hmm. instead you took a second, you okay, okay. They just don't have the budget for it in general with this way, but the money's moving around. How is this working right now? What's happening? And you took a second and said, okay, what's happening here? And they explained like you, you got these mentors that are, are crucial. That mentors are crucial. And they're like, listen, this is where the money's moving. This is the math behind it is this is what's adding value to the readers. This is what they want to have happen. And these are the dollar signs of how those things happen. And so when you're going there, you're not like, F you, you should be paying for my hotel. Mm-hmm. You're just like, okay, cool. This is how it works. This is how they're getting value. This is how their boss is happy. This is how these things function. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do these things that add value to those things that put me in that way. And then like past that, even, you know, where are my people at when I'm here so that I can do things to add value to the community as well. That's just being a good person and mm-hmm. being a good creative and finding out just like the way through it instead of just like beating your head against a wall. That's figuring out just like, how can I make this work? What is the solution? How does this function? And how do I play a piece in that instead of just like either yes or no, or like, how am I going to push my way through it? Where like, that's not always the answer right? To just yeah. like barrel through. You can't play that way if people aren't set up that way. So I, I, that's really cool how you kind of figured that. Thank you. I like the way that you put that. My father would describe me as bullheaded and stubborn. But <laughs> <laughs> stubborn in a good way. Stubborn, like 
no, I'm going to make this thing work. Not stubborn is like, F you, I'm coming through, you know? Exactly. There's different stubborn. There's different stubborn. Exactly. Tenacious. You know, I learned a good phrase a little while ago called self-advocacy. And there's, there's a clear, if not easily defined line between the bad kind of stubborn and being good at self-advocacy. If this mm. is who I am, this is the value I can add. I don't know where, I don't know how, but I'm going to find the match and I'm going to keep trying until I do. Mm. That is good self-advocacy. And I didn't realize at the time that's, that's what I was doing, but it worked. And so I kept doing what worked. Yeah, so, yeah. Totally. But yeah, it's not always like scientific or mechanical. Sometimes you're just like living the situation, you're reacting and you're just doing something, right? Oh, exactly. But exactly. in the back, if you like look over your years, like that might have been what it was doing because that concept of like the self advocacy that you're saying is I know that I have something to offer here, but I'm not going to tell you how to run your own day or your business because like I don't have the right to do that. I just know yeah. that I'm I'm going to add value somewhere. I just got to figure out where I need to be at to help people and that's such an earnest way to approach things. No one's going to be mad at you if you're like I'm worth something. Everyone's worth something. Everyone is worth something. It's just about where are you in the wrong spot or the right spot and having the self-awareness to move around the table to be in that spot. That's huge. Oh yeah, and if that's one metaphor that I lived in that industry, you know, being surrounded by sometimes thousands of people shooting paintballs is that if you're in the wrong spot, move. <laughs> it, you learn that by practice. <laughs> yeah, it hurts to be in the wrong spot too long. You know, I, I got really I can't good. Say, I can't say how many times. Actually, I would like to ask this to you. I don't know yeah. if this is too intimate of a question. This is completely unrelated to anything that's helpful in this podcast. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times my genitals have been hit by paintballs. And it makes me not happy in that time. <laughs> <laughs> Wear a cup every single time. <laughs> <laughs> if there's anything we get from the podcast from Dave Norman, it's wear a cup when you play paintball. <laughs> I, you know, I'd even cut the one you play paintball off. Just wear a cup. You never know. I, I'm a father of three. I should wear a cup at all times. <laughs> They're uh, what, four and a half, six and eight. So two of them are right at ball height. Right yeah. now. So they come barreling through the house. Thank God they're as loud as the they odds are. aren't in your favor. Yeah. yeah, if they weren't as loud as they are, man, it just come out of nowhere. It's like, boom, like Brady getting sacked out of the blue, except straight ball shot every time. Oh, God. Six-year-old. Oh, yes. Anyway. So stay out of the way. Stay out of the way. Yeah, out. There you go. You know, I learned that in martial arts, which I've only dabbled in. You never want to take a punch and you never want to try to stop or block a punch or a kick. You want to do as little as you can to slip it or redirect that energy. Right. And that is just such a beautiful metaphor for life. When, you know, bad energy is coming at you, don't try to stop it. Just shift. Don't, try, don't take like the punch. Just yeah. like try to avoid it or let it go past you or like redirect it. Exactly. Any paintball that I can get out of the way of instead of trying to block with something is a paintball that doesn't hit me in the balls or anywhere else. All right. That's that's a quote out there, people. <laughs> Metaphor for life, right? Yeah. Oh. oh my God. Don't take the nut shot. Redirect it. That's a quote of the day. All right. So <laughs> I want to take this and then move to... So we're hanging out in the Midwest. We intersected writing and paintball. We're here. We're adding value. We're finding ways to monetize this, to make it so that we can make this our living. And then that blows up into 12, 13 years. But mm -hmm. how the hell do you move from the Midwest to like, I know that we have this book that's like following Josh, China to Poland. Mm -hmm. How do we go from Midwest to different places 
all the way out to now we're traveling the world. Like, tell me the story. Like, how how does this develop over here? We've got 12, 13 years of movement. There you go. I'll try to make it brief and germane to what, uh, what we're here to talk about. Fair. Honestly, a, a drunken whim. I applied to grad school for creative writing when I was in my senior year. When I, I talked to a different grad school, uh, Mizzou's School of Journalism there at Columbia, Missouri, cool. and shook, shook all the right hands, met all the right people, aced the tests. They said, yeah, you're a shoe and just apply. And so kind of you know, heady on my own seeming success. I also applied to Dartmouth for their Master of Arts in Liberal Studies creative writing program. And I just basically took my Mizzou application and changed Mizzou to Dartmouth and sent that off one okay. night after after a college party. And then just totally forgot about it. A couple of weeks later, I got the skinny rejection letter from Mizzou. I have no idea how that happened to this day. I went from like, you're a shoe in to this like dream that you're banking on is not happening. You're not okay. the right kind of journalist. And I, I came up against that. So often over the course of being a writer, you know, a professional writer, you're like, oh, you're a professional writer. What do you do? And I say paintball. And they're like, oh, okay. Right? I've been ah, telling, this- a, telling a story is telling a story. Amen, it doesn't right? make any sense why you would. <laughs> exactly. So anyone who was oh my God. There, anyone who was out there was like, I have this really cool thing that I love to do. And then they share it with someone. If that other person looks at that and just dismisses it out of hand. Don't take it personally. Continue to love the thing that you love and keep taking the ride. I mean, if you bought the ticket, take the ride, ride it to the end. Who cares what other people think as wow. long as you're not hurting yourself or others? I mean, obviously. Oh my God, dude. Yeah, right. exactly <laughs> on, on par with what I say. Like, yeah, yeah there like, you go. So, yeah. be ethical. Don't do bad things to people. Be yeah. the best at what you are good as a superpower and do that all yeah. in. And like, that's it. There's nothing else that you're expected to do. That's it. And see where it goes. I just see where it goes. Totally. So, so I think that as part of my application package, having so many articles that had you know paintball and kind of esoteric sports, my only guess is that somehow that rubbed the wrong decision maker the wrong way. And yeah. pursuing my passion and my interest of writing and this weird sport somehow marginalized me away from the mainstream journalism world. Strange. But Dartmouth took me. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to New Hampshire. I had to look up on oh my God. where New Hampshire was because I honestly didn't really have a good concept of it. People <laughs> don't. People don't. It's just New England. Where, <laughs> hey, you all have one sports team, the Patriots that we hate. So you're all one thing. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Done. Exactly. Done. So I drew- yeah, so I drove up to Patriots Nation and did a couple, <laughs> years, a couple of years living in New Hampshire doing the same thing, just writing for the paintball magazines. And then in between semesters, that was, that was kind of my... My thing to justify not having a regular job to my parents and my family and all. It's like, oh, I don't have the office job you would expect. I'm not pursuing a career in the way that you expect me to. Oh, because I'm still in school. I'm a grad student. I can be forgiven for having a one-room apartment. Forgiven for my sins. Yeah. I I can be forgiven for trying to be an artist. (laughs) But... But yeah, anytime I wasn't in class, yeah. know, I was writing about paintball articles. I was there in their really fancy Sanborn library around other people who were like studying to go enter Wall Street and be like tycoons of industry. I was writing about the latest paintball equipment. It was still really paintball. Still, right, still the only thing. I, I got linked up with a guy named Paul Lamb, who over in Asia was pursuing one of his passions. He's a business dude. He lives in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And he's like, okay, over in Malaysia, paintball at the time was patently illegal. Their legal system made no difference between a full-on machine gun from the military and a paintball gun. Whoa. I brought mine. 
in Malaysia, this would get you just as much trouble as having an M249. What is that real quick? Because I know that it's a beast, whatever that is. is. CCM C5 from like 15 years ago. This is my pump action paintball gun. You can see my name on it. My number, team number 40 from Total Grief. Land shark. But yeah, in that country, like any paintball gun equals you're getting the death penalty just straight up. This guy thought, okay. A paintball gun. A paintball gun because there was no legal difference between that and anything more serious. So he he looked around his area and he's like, you know what? This is a big business in Thailand and Indonesia and other countries right by us. So if I talk to the government and I get them on board with paintball, then maybe they'll ease the restrictions. I'll be Hmm. posed to bring the sport to my country. This will be really cool for my country. No shit. Business move. Yeah, totally. He reached out to me. So this is where we get back to me. So here I am at Dartmouth. I get this email out of the blue from a guy in Kuala Lumpur saying, hey, do you want to come to Malaysia and take pictures of people playing paintball? We're trying to get the government to make it no longer a capital offense to own gear. And I'm like, there are so many sketchy things about this email that I have to say yes. (laughs) This is so, yes. They're like, these people can all get the death penalty technically right now. We don't want them to have that. Do you want to come here and be the only person documenting that? And you're like, in a completely different country than yours that you've never been to. And you're like, yes, yeah, of course I do. Totally. (laughs) It's that line they talk about. There's credibility, there's incredulity. And then beyond incredulity is super credibility. Okay. All super credibility. It's like, man, we're going to send a man to the moon in the next two years. You're like... No, be like, we're going to send a scientist to Mars in five years. Like, I don't know why you're making that claim, but I believe you have a reason. Hell yeah, we're sending a man to Mars. This totally. dude is like, I'm, I'm going to bring you to Malaysia. It's going to be awesome. You're going to meet these people. It'll work. I'm like, yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. cool. You got it. Cool. <laughs> Damn. Uh, there's some philosophy out there. The uh, yes philosophy, yes mentality, say yes to the dress. I, I have no idea. But yeah. like the idea that you should say yes a lot more in life, that was a, one of those moments where like everything suggested I should just delete the email, you know, banish it to the spam folder with all the Viagra ads and just be like, no. Yeah. But yep. instead, I'm like, yeah, dude, let's do this. That takes so, a certain that you have to be at a certain place in your like self-awareness or your life yeah. or something to be able to make that decision because our like natural human reaction is no. Like we naturally yeah. say no. Like if you just yeah. like allowed yourself to say what your natural reaction was. We like want to say no almost like 90% of the time because it puts us back in control of what we are unaware of or are unknown or fear. Yeah. And we say no, we just say no immediately to be like, whoa, let me let me slow down the situation. But like I think I spent I said this in another episode. I, people who are like listening to this on podcast, I will actually have this in the show notes. I'll find that episode. But Oh, it was on networking specifically. And it's about how like, sometimes people are like, yo, I'm in LA, like I'm coming from New England, right? So there've been people who are like, I'm in LA, you should come and meet me. And sometimes I'm just like, yeah, you know what I mean? And like, you just jump on a plane, you go meet someone. It's like, it's crazy. Like to other people, it's like, wait, you just like heard something and you just said yes. And you just like traveled and you were gone and you were in a new place. You don't know anyone. You have no idea what's happening. You just like adapt yeah. and you're like, yeah, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Because- yeah. Those moments, like it really like on the decision making, it's really difficult. Like it feels 
weird and it feels like you're being stupid or crazy. And then you try to reaffirm that with people be like, I'm not crazy. Right. And they're like, no, you are. That makes no sense. That's crazy. (laughs) But when you do it, then all of a sudden the growth period is huge and it changes shit for you that it's like, it's worth it to do that stuff. So that's huge for that. You took that chance, you know? Yeah. So that was a really cool opportunity that I ran with. And then I ultimately covered paintball in Malaysia, uh, a little bit up in Thailand, in the UK. What is it? Plymouth, England was there. And Moscow, Russia. That was part of the following Josh trip that I took. You know, the paintball aspect of that was incidental to researching my book, Following Josh. But uh, yeah, while I was there, I was able to do just enough of that to you know, get a nice stack of receipts for tax write-offs. So. I, I bet. Exactly. But yeah, so just kind of saying yes to adventures. We're mentioning that trip that I spun up in my book following Josh. That was another chance that I just said yes to this totally kind of out of the blue opportunity that landed in my lap. A buddy named Josh, who was teaching English in Korea for a little while. And when his contract ran up, he said, you know, I'm going to fly home, live in my parents' basement, kind of make it up until I figure out what I want to do next in my life. Sure. I don't want to just like show up and be like, hi, I'm in my parents' basement again. Like, I want to have this kind of epic adventure where I'm in Korea, I'm going to fly to Beijing, I'm going to jump on the Trans Mongolian Railroad. I'm like, is that even a thing? Is there, okay, sure. It's like, then I'm going to go up to Irkutsk and I'm going to get on the Trans Siberian Railroad. I'm going to take it west. I'm just going to like party my face off, meet people, go cool places, do fun shit until I run out of money. And then I'll get like my dad to buy me a plane ticket home or something. But that's how <laughs> I'm going to transition from this stage of my life to this other stage of my life. I need that transition. I'm like, wow. yeah, dude, that makes total sense. And then he, he said the key phrase, do you want to come with me? Yeah. Yeah, I do. So I did. And I wrote a book about it. So, Crazy, again, man. By, yeah. By saying yes to those opportunities, you, you don't know where you're going to go. You could be getting paintball shot at you in Malaysia or could be drinking in Mongolia. You just, you don't know. Yeah. And that's like allowed you to live so much, like so much life in such a short amount of time and so young in your life that is compressed that by saying yes to things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like a lot of people don't say yes to it. And those opportunities come up where like maybe not even as drastic as that, where it's like a business venture or like you're already in a space and like someone like, like maybe even simpler, right? Like for people out there, like maybe as simple as like some friends are going on a trip. They're like, Hey, you want to come on this trip with us? And you just say, no, you're like, no, the money's not good right now. No, the time's not right. I've got, you know, a lot of things to do with work and blah, blah, blah. Like people say no to stuff. And it's like, I like always on this podcast, talk about the reference of time versus what your abilities are to do in your life. And like, we just talked about this in the last episode, like literally before this is happening right now, but like, it's just such a reoccurring thing to talk about like how much time we have versus the things that we want to do on our bucket list or the amount of life that we want to live. And like saying yes, seems to be like a trait in your journey of just like, I said, yes. And it's like, you've lived a lot of life in your time that would normally for other people be bucket list items or things that they literally never do. They like retire at like 65, 70 and they're like, Oh, I would love to do that. Game over. That's awesome that you, you said, yeah. Thanks. I think you came up right to the edge of a really cool idea just now. The inclination to say no, to say no. And I think there, there's a really important line between self-care and you know wearing yourself out unhealthily. Totally. And it's an important line between self-care and fear 
self-care and uncertainty, self-care and dis- I would say it's a line between self-care and discomfort. Mm. Like, Perfect. If you're given an opportunity and you just want to say no, just sit with that for a moment and be like, all right, is this self-care? And if so, you got to watch out for your energy. You got to watch out for your budget. You got to watch out for the important things. Love it. But if, if it's not actually self-care, like, oh, is this just because I don't know enough about the situation? Right. And that to me should highly suggest you ought to say yes instead. I like that. I like that you just like kind of boiled that down a bit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There's like sometimes like times in life where you need to slow down for a second because you're pushing too hard against the discomfort. You're doing too many things that are crazy. And you're like, actually, it would be great to do nothing right now. Mm -hmm. But then there's other times where you're like, why am I reacting this way? Is it actually because it is the wrong decision? And my mind's like, please don't do that to us. Or is it because of some other thing that is like a natural reaction that we're not like dissecting enough to see like, why am I making this choice? And is it right or actually wrong? Exactly. And yeah. don't, just, don't just be contrary to your own gut instinct because your gut instinct is pretty right. But if your gut instinct is like, well, slow down real quick, sit with it for a minute and figure out why. And yeah. if why is just a natural inhibition toward uncomfortable personal growth or simply not knowing what it's going to be like. Uh, get a little bit more information and then make a decision, but don't just sit with no. Right. Yes. So we have this journey that happens and that's obviously like what this book was based off was this journey. And it was funny in the message you were talking about like how much Maine recycles names. It drives me nuts, dude. It drives me nuts when I'm in the middle of nowhere and it's like Mexico or Moscow or China. And you're like, what the fuck, dude? Like this state has been around for a very long time too. And like, we can have our own <laughs> names. Why are we doing this so much? The state for people out there who are not from Maine, because I know we have people from around the world and like the US, we recycle names like crazy. And we have towns that like, there's no one that lives in them. They're mm-hmm. small towns. And like, I live in a small town and I love it. But it's like, they name themselves after like these international like mm-hmm. names. And you're like, it's so confusing for people, yeah. who, especially tourists. I guess people cross like with Dave's book on, what is the name of it? It's like basically from China to Warsaw, right? Yes. Uh, China, China to, to Poland, Poland by rail is the subtitles. Following Josh, China to Poland by rail. And I've, I've sold a lot of these you know, through regular distribution channels. But just because I love meeting my readers, I've flopped a table, a card table out at First Fridays in Portland, which for those who are from away, every First Friday of the month, the town of Portland just lets people put out a card table on the sidewalk and sell their art, their jewelry, their paintings, their books. Technically, technically you can do it 24-7 as long as you're not blocking a fire escape. But the First Friday tradition is that's when people really make a concerted effort to see and be seen and sell their wares and go out for it. And so I have a stack of these books, and I can't tell you how many times people would pick it up and look at it and be like, uh-oh, China to Poland, Maine by rail. I didn't know they had a rail line between <laughs> China and Poland, Maine, like because they don't like they don't they, they don't. hardly have a road between there. You can't get there from here. They don't talk to each other. There's actually no telecom between there. You can't even use cell <laughs> phone. Yeah, you're, you're right. like it's not about that. It's not. No, I went to the countries. The countries. I went from China to Poland, which is super legit. Not it like, was like, like four thousand miles or whatever. It took me twelve weeks. Like, oh, oh are gosh. you Josh? Like, no, why would I be following myself? 
I'm, I'm following Dave. myself. I'm following myself to two towns. I'm this guy. I say I'm the author. This guy. <laughs> I, I love it. It always kicks off a good conversation. I'm like, oh, have you been to China? And they look, yeah, I drove through there on my way to wherever other obscure main town. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. But the country, they're like, oh, no, never been there. No, no, cool. no. no. Let's, let's talk about where you have been. And then we talk about their travel or their thoughts about travel. And before you know it, you know, I'm signing books and people are buying them. That's awesome. That's something I love about Maine or specifically about Portland is how accessible the arts community is that way. No matter what your art is, you can put it on a card table and you can shoot your shot. I love that. That's awesome. That's really cool. And there's amazing. There's some badass art out there and there is some badass courage out there as well. Yep. Like whatever you think about the art that takes courage especially in winter, people are trying to get those Christmas sales, right? But they're out there in December in Maine with a card table trying to pay some rent. That's legit. Respect. Respect, Respect, dude. We said it at the same time. Mad respect, man. Like, yeah, totally. The hustle is real. You know, being out there with the table, flipping books or whatever you're up to. I mean, that's legit. And that's also why I love it here because like, it's a super create your own way mentality of like so many people here know how to like do things themselves. They can fix their cars. They can cook a meal. They can figure out hunting or whatever. Like people, people figure their own way here. And then like the creative community in Portland, even goes a step further of like figuring your own way to hustle your art. Like, I love it. This is where I'm supposed to be. I love this place, dude. (laughs) Exactly. I fell in love with it pretty soon after moving here. And then I moved away for a couple of years for family reasons. Missed it so much that as much as I love my family and I'm connected to my hometown area, we moved back. My wife. Sucked you back. We got you back. Yeah. My wife and kid and I moved back, had two more kids. And here we are very, very happily. Gotcha. We gotcha. You got to follow your heart. Well, so I guess like let's transition right there where we talked beforehand about this is a book that hasn't come out yet, right? Uh, following Josh? No, no, no. Uh-huh. This portion of gentrification of. Yes. Okay. So this hasn't come out yet for people who are listening yeah. to the podcast, but Dave and I spoke about it and like it fired me up a little bit because we speak about principles of it on the podcast as well, where you're going to explain this better than me. Essentially, Dave, who has been living in Portland longer than me, has seen something happening where I think this is probably something that happens frequently, though, not just Portland, Mm -hmm. about how people create really cool vibes in art-centered cities and towns. And then that draws in more than just the creatives and draws in commercial and money And because it's a cool place to be now, like there's art everywhere. Everything looks really neat. The paint colors, the the outside, like everything just looks cool. There's a vibe that's happening. It's just a cool place to be at. And then it draws in commercial, it draws in money. And then when that happens, it pushes out the artists who are usually not making the income to actually take on that commercialism with their art income. You know, they were doing just fine before that happened. And then that comes in. And it fucks up what they've got going on because they created that art to make the place. But now the place starts getting gentrified and pushed out from commercial that's driven from it. Is that roughly what you're talking about through this? 
Yeah, that's a great encapsulation of what we were talking about before. Okay, it's a big concept. Exactly. This uh, project we're talking about, it's tentatively titled. It's uh, going to be my debut novel once I can get it into the hands of the right agent who then gets it in the hands of the right publisher and then and then and then. But it's a, a novel that I wrote over the course of the last number of years set in contemporary Portland that kind of looks at that central irony of what happens to the creative class people who make a place really neat, super livable, super desirable, super fun, who then get pushed out by the ramifications of their success. Right. Right. More people come to not necessarily be a part of the scene as contributors, but be adjacent to the scene. Mm. Prices go up, prices go up, jobs get a little bit harder to have. And now whatever your day job may be, now you got to live a little bit farther away to commute into that. You got to sell a little bit more art to hang on and the people who are having the hardest time clinging on, whether they're in the creative community, whether they're in the service community, whether they're clinging on in some other sort of way, as the gentrification happens, they get kind of pushed out. And so right. people who contribute to whatever feel, whatever scene is going on that's attracting so much attention, they start getting really squeezed hard and then pushed out of their homes and out of their communities. And the novel that I wrote kind of looks at a very, very small slice of that life. The characters, since it's a novel, they're all fictitious, but they work kind of ironically for a local moving company. So they are inadvertently hired to move into town the people who are displacing their friends and are ultimately threatening their home. So they make side gigs of selling art in the street, doing guerrilla performances, doing whatever it is that really kind of brings them alive. But they got to make the rest rent by doing something. So a lot of them ironically work for a moving company. So they're in behind the scenes there. Right. I, I look at those questions of, you know, what does gentrification look like to the people who are really most affected by it? Kind of that ironic way that they're causing it either by moving people in, by creating the vibe that's so attractive, by whatever, and looking at their lives. It's inspired by a lot of people that I've met in the Portland creative community. It's inspired by hearing a lot of their stories. One of the kind of bigger stories that kicked off this idea in the first place was some tension between some of the shops in one of the touristy parts of the old port that was like, hey, we, we don't want people on the sidewalk clogging things up around our stores. Maybe they're competing for our business. We don't want to say it. And others being like, hey, we, we can't afford storefronts. We wanted to sell our art in Bellabooey Park on Exchange Street, along right. Market Street. And it's kind of back and forth with the valid arguments to those being like, well, we pay the rent that supports the tax base. Help us out. And the artists being like, we're contributing hugely to this vibe that brings in people to all of the shops. Wow. Don't, don't push us into the shadows. And so I was looking at that story. I went to one of the big contentious city hall meetings quite a while ago by now, where they were looking at rezoning parts of the old port to only allow street vendors for certain days and certain times. And all That'd be awesome. Things. That'd be so and cool. There you go. So, well, well, kind of the opposite of that, because they were looking at restricting it, saying you cannot be on the sidewalk. No, no. Except yeah. for. So I, I looked at that and said, oh, wow. So that scene that I was a part of in real life is kind of a fly in the wall. I said my piece, but after the important people had said theirs, I recreated that scene in the book and spun out a bunch of scenes that looked at that from different angles. So I've been working on that book a lot. And I wanted to kind of throw this idea at you. We talked about a little bit on air just now, off air. You, You got kind of the back jacket experience, but I've got two titles. I'm having a hard time choosing between the two. One of them is Hash 207, 
One of them is True Blue. Which one makes you pick up that book, knowing nothing else? Hash 207, True Blue. Hashtag 207? Uh, the word spelled out, H-A-S-H. Hash 207. Or True Blue. True Blue. What is it being aimed at? Like specifically, who's supposed to pick up that book? I would say readers between the ages of 18 and 35, people in more urban areas, less in rural areas, readers of contemporary American fiction slash mass market commercial fiction. Okay. Because obviously, like as a Mainer, if I see hash 207, I'm going to pay attention to it because I see that number. Mm -hmm. And that's Uh, our statewide area code for those from away. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, people. One area code. Totally. Yeah. That's our area code 207. If you're in Maine, that's what's up. So, I mean, as a Mainer, I'm going to see that. True Blue, I might check out because I need to understand, like, what are you trying to say? You know what I mean? Like, I might see True Blue and be like, what does that mean? That's difficult between the two, though. <laughs> yeah. it, it's difficult. It depends on like what it really like. It depends on like, damn. I mean, I guess why hashed, why hash 207? What does that mean? That's why an, hash? It's an excellent question. Uh, and why true blue? Right. Cool. The vast majority of the characters as one of their social outlets are in an organization called the Hash House Harriers, which is an international running club with a drinking problem. And we've got a lot of hashers, as we're called, right here in Portland. And so it's something that younger folks, younger folks as if I'm not one of them, something that people of all ages, <laughs> but generally skewed toward the ages of the characters in my book, do where you meet at a bar, you get a drink or two. This is pre-pandemic times, post-pandemic eventually. You get a drink or two. Somebody leaves with a bag of chalk. They mark a running trail through whatever environment they want to take you through. You don't know if it's going to be one mile or five. You don't what? know if you're going to go over an overpass, through an alley, crawl through a swamp. You don't know where you're going. You just know that you're following chalk arrows with some of your best friends. There will be beer halfway through, and there's going to be a party at the end. That sounds amazing. That sounds sounds amazing. amazing. It happens every single week. It costs you five bucks. But like drugs, your first time is free because we want to get you hooked. Wow. I would totally do that. Wow. Right. Anyway, so the characters do this thing called hashing, and that's how they know each other. That's how people from a moving company know people who do guerrilla theater, who know people who are lawyers and landlords and all the other characters that come together, know each other through networking through the hash. And each hash's number is like, oh, this week is number 155. Next week is 156, blah, blah, blah. And the hash that happens to be 207, the same as the state's area code, is the culminating hash. They're like, man, this is going to be an epic blowout party. And during that trail... They run across the evil city councilman who's trying to eminent domain their house. Uh-huh. Across a lot of the other antagonists, the main character whose name is Jamie Schmidt, he has his like big, are you going to rise to the occasion or are you going to run off into the uh, shadows and hide? That challenge to his character, it all happens during hash number 207, hmm. which is a big deal because of the state area. I thought it was a great title. My developmental editor, Alan Rinsler, thought it was terrible as a title. So we came up with True Blue. And I'm like, yes, Alan, you have worked with some amazing people and also me for some reason. I defer to you, but I still like Hash 207. And he's like, that's a terrible title. I'm like, cool. We'll try True Blue and we'll focus group it. And I'll, I'll put and it to my True Blue, I guess. What does that mean? So spoiler alert, it's the group's name that our uh, protagonist earns by the end of the book. So in order to prove yourself to the community, you have to basically rise to the occasion. So by rising to the occasion, helping defend his community from the evil developers and the other bad guys in the book, they take him into the fold 
And they say, all right, we have a song that involves the phrase true blue. You've proven yourself true blue. This is your name. So like the hero's journey, when he's finally accepted by his people, he earns the nickname true blue. True blue. Okay. I think like, I mean, like I'm not even going to, People who are listening to podcasts, if you want to put in your two cents, it sounds like focus group wise, that would help out Dave. So he's going to have his links at the end of this podcast. You can hit him up direct or you can hit me up and I'll relay it to him. But that would be really cool. But like both of them, I guess, like, because I didn't know about the hash, which also Mm -hmm. like we'll have to talk some other time because I'm interested. I'm a huge runner and a huge craft beer person. So that's like everything that I love in life, but I wouldn't have known that. And so like both of those titles, it would depend kind of like what's on the front and like what, like the sub message of like true blue hash 207, a blah, blah, blah about the blah, blah, blah. That would depend on like what, if I really picked it up or not, but both of those, I would equally not know what was happening automatically as a mainer is 207. I'd be like, what's up with this? I need to at least know what's up with this. You know what I mean? Because I'm attracted to a seven. But for the country, I feel like I would equally look at both of those depending on what was on there and be like, what's happening here? And then see if I am down with it or not. But that's just me on that. Here you go. I think that's also the central weakness of the book. Alan and I spent a year rewriting it from scratch into what I think is a very, very strong, compelling story. Cool. But the title just, it, we haven't really hit the perfect title that captures people's attention. So I am open. Anyone who is an agent, who is an editor, who is also an author, or just anyone who has a better title based on what we talked about, I will work with anybody who has a good idea around making one of my pieces stronger. And I've identified that, you've identified that as one of the like stumbling blocks where it could definitely be improved. Sure. So that's where it needs to go next. I'm actively trying to get an agent to pick it up right now. I'm super down working with them or whomever, change it to whatever you think is actually going to sell. And as long as it's, you know, not too terribly offensive to my tastes, let's <laughs> roll with it. The rest of the book is good to go. I mean, I spent a long time making the rest of it good, but that title we got to, I'm open. It's tough, man. It's tough. That shit is tough. I'm creating a clothing brand and like I've talked about it on here and it's like a brand for creatives that they wear. And it basically encapsulates the message of this podcast, which is like, I'm going to do my thing and it doesn't matter what you think. I'm doing my thing, right? That's like the brand. But I've been working on this six months and I just came up with a name for it two weeks or a month ago. And it's like, mm-hmm. until you have the title that like says like everything that I've come up with an idea, this is the thing in literally two words or three words or something that yeah. just hits someone right away. Yeah, You can't be done. You like have mm-hmm. to have it. You like have to have that title. It's so important. So I, I feel you in a total different way, but like I know how that feels and it's frustrating. You're like waking up, you're like, I have an entire fucking book that's so good, yeah. but I need the title and the title has to catch it so that people respect how good this book can be. That's really hard to do. And it's frustrating to like live with that. I yeah. feel that. Yeah. It's like this evil distillation of the elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. After elevator pitch, I'm like, oh crap, 20 seconds or less to like (laughs) share this thing that I've been doing for years and I'm passionate about. It's my heart. And I've wasted seven seconds already. Ah! Yeah. yeah. Like take that and be like, oh no, no, no. Two words. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I admit failure. I need help. (laughs) Fix my somebody. That's so hard, man. Anyone out there that's like a, a listener or something, hit them up. Let's see what there happens. Yeah. But this, that's a real, that's a real, that's awesome that you wrote it in a way that it is like a story that's like encapsulating. It's something that 
people are going to want to read just for the fun of the adventure of it. But I think that it's a very real problem. And like, to be quite frank, like I'm part of that problem in a way where like this happened to me where I was growing up, I was growing up in a place where like the art and the culture and the the scene where like my business and like my creative needed to be a part of was in like Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for those that don't know it, it's like New Hampshire has a very small piece of seacoast, like not a lot. Right. And then Maine and Mass like start taking over the rest of that seacoast. They don't have a lot of it. And Portsmouth is a really cool old seaport town that has music and art and cool food. And like, it's just the place. And so I felt like my audio business needed to be somewhere around the seacoast. And it's like, Portsmouth has Boston prices already. Like Boston Mm -hmm. prices to live there. You can't live in Portsmouth. It's like untouchable for any artist. There's like, there are, there are people that live there, but like, I just don't know how. And people have already started moving out into like the surrounding neighborhoods around there. It's already pushed out. Like you're going to live like 30, 40 or more minutes out. And like, it's not the same scene when you're living there as being in Portsmouth. And so that pushed me to be like, I'm going to Maine, man. There's so much seacoast in Maine. And a lot of these seacoast towns have that vibe. Like they just happen to have it. Like each, so many seacoast towns, they have like awesome food, awesome music, awesome art, creatives, people trying to start new businesses. There's just cool shit happening. And I'm attracted to it. And so I move up here 20 minutes north of Portland and I buy this house to make my studio and my creative space and like be that. And I think that there's a lot of people that are pumped to have me here and I'm pumped to be here and I'm going to contribute as much as I possibly can. But at the end of the day, I did the same shit to these people where I bought this house and this was way cheaper for me than living in Portsmouth, right? Which was Portsmouth was that price because it was way cheaper for people from Boston to go live in Portsmouth than it was for me. And this mm-hmm. shit's going to keep happening until we all live in Canada and then we all live in the Arctic Circle. Like something's going to happen because exactly. people, the prices aren't going down where it's warm. And it's just like, it's yeah. a real problem. And it's really happening right now, especially with population growth. And I'm glad that you're talking about it. And I'm glad, glad that you're talking about it in a way that's very ultra accessible. I'm excited to, to see this out. Thanks. I'm trying. You know, in the last 11 years since I moved to Portland, the first time there were two years I lived in the Midwest and I lived back in St. Louis during that time. And I saw that same story play out on the Cherokee Street district of St. Louis. Yeah. And a couple other other enclaves inside of St. Louis. Like as soon as there's a really cool scene, then the attention comes, the money comes, the people come, and it is great. But at some point, it gets just a little bit top heavy. And then on the one hand, you get a cool elevation of the art. Because those who are really commanding the prices and crushing really it. doing it, they are crushing it. And God bless Love it. it. Awesome. But then there's the, okay, what about the upstarts? The people who would have flopped out their card table, but now they're crowded out. They can't afford to live there or commute there in the first place. It's no longer their scene. And so while that balloon goes up and that's cool, that those opportunities dry up at the lower levels where the people are just starting out, where they're taking their passions to the right. streets in the first right. place. It still needs to be a place for that. And I saw that when we, I lived briefly in New York City. I've lived in St. Louis. I've lived lots of places. This isn't a Portland story that I wrote. I wrote it with Portland names and streets. This is a story that's you know probably as old as Babylonia. Totally, totally. <laughs> happening since cities were invented. Cyclical, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you look at New York is like the perfect story because you watch like the Burbs and like yeah. you watch like Brooklyn. Oh my God, to live in Brooklyn right now would be a treasure for an artist, right? But like, 
it was not that cost to live in Brooklyn. And now you can't live in Brooklyn and it keeps doing that. And then now Harlem's popping, you know what I mean? Like, and Mm -hmm. it just keeps doing that shit. And it's like an arbitrage of like cost of living versus how cool you can make shit versus how safe it is. It's like right in that little Delta, there's like this amazing art that happens. And then everyone piles in right, right when that is made. And there's people there that come in and they're like, Oh, I don't give a shit about putting any money into any of that art. I just love seeing that stuff around me and I'm just juiced on the feeling. And then they just go to like all the whatever box store shit and they don't put any money into any of the art. And you're like, that's the problem. The real problem is like the third, fourth, fifth wave that comes in. You're like, let us breathe down here, right? Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. cyclical human behavior. It is what it is. Yeah. I, I love the kind of Levee Boem moment that you brought in with that. It's like, yeah, it's, it's still kind of crouchy. It's still kind of dangerous when it's also still affordable enough for the people who are like doing it full time and haven't made it yet. Yeah, yeah. You got to have that angst. You always have to have like that like grit oh, yeah. to it. And that's what makes real art. It's like having a little bit of feistiness, a little uh-huh. bit unsafe here, but like, I think I'm cool, you know? <laughs> Exactly. One of my favorite scenes in the book is there's a dude with a knife and a dude with a shovel fighting in the street outside <laughs> of this communal living house where all the characters live. And they're like cheering him on, like, go shovel, dude. That he's like, go knife, dude. And the city councilman's out walking his dog like, this is everything wrong with this neighborhood. This is why we need to blah, 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 blah. Did blah. that really happen? Did that really uh, happen? The knife or shovel fight did yeah. happen. It happened in East Bayside, not in the India Street neighborhood where I set the book. But that's an authentic knife or shovel street fight that people like throwing down. Like, I got a five run shovel, dude. Be like, no, 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 man. Knife guy's scrappy. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But that kind of thing happens in neighborhoods where you can afford to live. And that was artist. St. Louis, you're saying, right? No, that was Portland. Yeah, because I didn't understand that at first. But I was going to say, for people out there not who are not from New England, that 100% can happen in Portland. And also, yes. I would be the person like bar hopping or something. I would see that fight and be like, knife guy. Knife guy's got it. <laughs> Knife guy's got it. There's no way shovel guy's going to come through. <laughs> exactly. That's 100% Portland. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, my, my money is on <laughs> Knife guy too. <laughs> Knife guy's a little bit more strategic about this. Shovel guy really came in with you know, like he's reacting to the situation, but knife guy exactly. had had this night planned. Unfortunately, <laughs> he was prepared. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> All right, um, we're going a little long on what I normally do, but I'm like really having fun here. So I have one more thing I want to pick on, and then I want to jump into. I've got like six questions I ask at the end of every episode. If that's cool with you. Cool. You didn't tell me what to study. So man, forgive me if I only get a D on this paper. No, I never will. I no no studying for this. That's the part of it. So like before we get into that on the last questions, I just want to bring up this blog that you're starting here that kind of like hubs out a lot of different things that you do. It's called Dave Thinks Too Much, right? Yep. Dave Dave Thinks Too Much dot com. Yeah. Okay, cool. What's up with this? Because it was cool. Like we heard through so much of your life here. I looked at your older website with the photography and the books and things like this. And this is a different thing offering different pieces of you to the world. And you said it's pretty new with some blog content coming out that's very specific to the people who are typically listening to this show. Like, Can you tell me a little bit more about this new kind of like brand or content piece for you? Absolutely. So the blog, DaveThinksTooMuch.com is kind of an experiment in 
presenting myself to the world as an author, as a guy who's got a lot of content that doesn't really have a home at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it needs to go somewhere. It's ideas. Like I said, thinks too much. It's like, this has been on my mind. I want to share it with the world in a way that hopefully connects with people and is meaningful, but I can't sell it to a newspaper. Harper's won't take it, whatever the case may be. And also I will kind of want that public trace that says, hey, not only do I write, but I've also done editing for people. So I'll edit your book. I'll edit your manuscript. I'll edit whatever you want. Let's talk. And if I'm no good at it, I know people who are, I'd be happy to hook you up and, you know, make that introduction. Where can people go to be like, oh, what does Dave actually do? He writes, he edits, here's some stuff about his book. So maybe that's too much for one particular website or blog to try to encapsulate. And if so, it'll fail miserably and I'll read something new from the ashes. Dave thinks too much, man. He thinks too much. There's so much going on this site. He thinks too much. Right. Exactly. You know, from, from the hot mess, maybe we'll compress a diamond out of the carbon. But we'll see. <laughs> That's my motto for this podcast, man. So you're good. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm yes, also man. Dave and I also think too much. Maybe it's a characteristic of us, man. You know, if it doesn't fly for me, I'll sell you the domain name cheap. <laughs> Six pack of craft beer, maybe. All right. <laughs> 100% I'll take that. Easy. There you go. Yeah. So you talked about update that's coming real soon. I'm going to get a piece up. It's about halfway drafted, but I'm going to finish it based on what we talk about tonight. It's going to be the latest blog post talking cool. about three lessons from my journey that we spent the last hour talking about. I'm going to kind of boil it down and be like, boom. What are three takeaways for people who want to take their passion, take their creative side and do something more with it, Mm. whether it's monetize it, simply make it pay for itself, or maybe even launch a career. I'm going to get three leads. We're going to put it up as a blog post. It'll be a lot faster to read that than it is to re-listen to this podcast. So boom. And I want to get that out there to celebrate being here. And as a way of thanking you, Dave, for having me on podcast, be like, boom, this is what we talked about. If you like these three bulleted points, Here's the full thing. Go check out what else Dave has been up to with the Waking Up From Work podcast. That'll be cool. Respect, dude. Thank you for that. And like for people who are listening, if you want to check out that blog post, when do you think you'll have that up, you think? Right now, it's Thursday, the 9th of September. Give me till Saturday morning. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, This podcast is not coming out for like four or five weeks. So people who are listening right now to the podcast, as a podcast, this will be in the show notes. I'll have a link write to that blog post from Dave so you can read that and hear his like other take on this conversation and an input. So, so thank you. That's what I'm up to with that. You ready for my questions? I'm ready. No studying. No studying. <laughs> do, right. do I need coffee or a glass of wine? Which direction is this going to go? Uh, this podcast is both. You usually mix them together. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is that type of podcast, high energy, but like should be a bar conversation between creatives at the end of the day when like shit's been real. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First question. So uh, just so for context for you, Dave, I asked these questions to every person on every episode. I added one question recently to make it six instead of five, but I do that so that after a hundred episodes, every hundred episodes, I'm going to take these answers and kind of like montage them and see what are the similarities and what are the things that are different situationally between the way that people answer these? And it's been really interesting so far to see that happen. So cool. Yeah. That was such a great idea. Episode 100. It's like this ep- It's actually this question right here. So we'll see what happens next. But awesome. why do you wake up and do what you do every day versus any other thing that you could possibly do? Existential terror. Hmm. If I don't do what speaks to my heart and makes me feel alive, 
then am I just wasting my time? Damn. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I, I got other stuff going on we didn't talk about uh, here in the podcast because it's too far afield. But yeah, to kind of, kind of like make it a little bit lighter, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's like I want to do something, build something, create something that is actually useful to other people that engages other people. And if I don't do that, well, I'm still thankful that I had another beautiful day of life in Maine. But what is it added up toward? I'd right. like to add up to something. I, I believe that everything that we do, that we learn, that we experience is beautiful in and of itself, but also informs our approach going forward every day. And mm-hmm. so if you can somehow extract a lesson from that, a value from that, something to give to someone else, or just kind of sit with and be like, this is an idea that I have had based on experience. Ha, ah, that is what I am after in doing the things that I do. I want to fill a bookshelf with books that I have written, but only if they actually have content that's worth somebody's time. And I'm what, four books deep into that right now and two manuscripts I'm trying to sell. Love it. That's what I'm trying to do. Try to add value and get perspective that's useful and make it available. I love that. That's the point of this show is that. So along the way, say you could talk to like five years ago, you or 10 years ago, you what's something that you would say, like, don't do this thing. Like this really sucked. Don't do this. You could take the lesson from it and somehow push it into them without the experience, which is never the case. They always have to live it for real life. But say you could, what's something you'd say is like the worst thing along the way or like, don't do this thing. I have to be extremely careful how I answer that. (laughs) I would say instead of being like, okay, 34 year old Dave, don't do this thing. I would say, okay, 34 year old Dave, you've got one kid at home. You're thinking about having a second, maybe a third. Here are some ideas about how to stay true to yourself, stay true to your art and stay true to the balance of creation, family and mental health in ways that allow you to be reasonably good at each of these things Hmm. instead of failing at all of them simultaneously. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a dad. People telling me I'm good at being a dad. I like being a dad. It is the most disruptive thing that has ever happened to my life, to my creativity, to my anything. Hmm. And so it's really occasioned an eight and a half year now, because my oldest child is eight and a half, eight and a half year experiment in taking time for my creative content, in kind of defending continuity of thought and energy and saying, all right, this is where I need to carve out time for creative project. And this is where I need to shelf the creative project and pay attention to the people in my life who are super important. Yes. And I still am not good at that balance. It is important. Oh my God. I could have gone gone into it more mindfully, more confidently. I could have done it a lot better than I did. And thankfully, I've gone through a lot of the worst of the learning curve and I'm okay at it now. But it is so hard. So anyone out there who is a parent, is about to be a parent, think of being a parent, mad respect for staying true to all of the things that you do, especially creative stuff. Some of the first things that get back burnered, time with friends, time pursuing interests. And when that time pursuing interests also includes the creative thing that that you get up for in the morning. Oh, you, you got to slow your roll in order to be the best parent partner and person you can be. Yep. You also have to take time to feed that creative side, that entrepreneurial side, whatever side really engages you. 
you can't just let that go and then get angry and resentful that it's not working. So I think I answered that long, but carefully. No, but that was a great answer. And we have had, for people who are new listeners, we have had on a photographer actually from Maine who was a started her photography business as a stay-at-home mom and her husband travels. So she was doing that actually with her child, like on the photo shoots. It's crazy. But the child is like growing into it and like fucking loving it. And it's like such a cool story. And there's also stories of other people on here because I don't have kids. And that's a problem that I've heard in the community of like, yo, I'm having a kid or I have a kid and I am trying to figure out how the fuck to do all this shit the right way. All of it, I want to be good at and I need to be good at all of it because you can't be, this is what I'm hearing because I don't have that perspective. I don't have kids, right? But what I'm hearing is I can't be the father or the mother that I need to be if I'm not feeding the creative that makes me who I am. Like I have to be this person and fill this cup or I'm empty and I'm not the person, right? But also time-wise, I need to be there and be present for these people that I've created or have created a life with. And I need to be the person that they need at times and not hold weight on just these activities to be that person. And that balance right there, huge props and respect to everyone in the community and people listening and people who have been on the show before that have done that. That's a straight up fear of mine. Why (laughs) I'm I'm kicking that can if we're going to talk about kicking cans of like, it's on my vision board. I'm going to have kids someday. But right now, I just, I don't want to fuck around with that because I I know what people are dealing with and it's tough shit. People are doing it and it can happen and you're doing it. Mad respect though. And it's tough and it's got to happen somehow for creatives. They, people got to have kids and people have got to be creative. That's tough intersection. Absolutely. I love the way that you summarized that. That was fantastic. Part of my self-therapy around that, I'm 72,000 words deep on another manuscript tentatively titled, I Wanted a Cactus my reluctant journey of paternity. And I look back at how much of this is just me complaining about life and how much of this is useful to other people. And and I'll throw away the former and keep the latter someday. And eh, maybe I'll have a funny essay book about it someday. You'd be surprised though. Sometimes the complaints are education, you know? There you go. So yeah, man, that was a way that I found my creative side to kind of help nurture even through the dark times of figuring out who, who I was, what I was doing. Fair. Flip side to it, what's the best thing that you've ever done? You're like, hey, definitely do this. This is like the best idea I've ever had. I think as we covered earlier, say yes to bizarre opportunities. Take the adventure, buy the ticket, take the ride. Say yes. Yeah, say yes to adventure. What would be your superpower? Like what makes you, like what's like when people talk about you and they're like, damn, Dave fucking brings this out. You know, what is Dave Norman's superpower? Extemporaneous speaking. None of the last hour and 19 minutes have been scripted. This is all just off the cuff conversation. So extemporaneous speaking. Cool. I would say humorously. I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, as you're first saying saying it, like my brain still addled from the day's coffee jumped ahead. I'm like to fly, to fly. But that's not where you went with superpower. Yeah, I know. I know it messes with people. Sometimes people like someone said the, the last episode with Jimmy Fritz, it said, he said mind reading and I was like, oh no, not like a superpower, like a superhero. Like what's your superpower as a person? Like what makes you like crazy good at shit? And he's like, mind reading. I'm really good at understanding what people are thinking. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> he's like, he double edged me like right away. But, <laughs> but yeah, I got that from you, man. Like I totally understand that. And if you said it like 
that quickly, it must be real. Cause that was like instinct for you to be like, that's what I'm really good at. That's what people see right away. There you go. Maybe yeah. I should host a game show. Maybe that should be my thing. A talk show or something. I would watch it. It sounds entertaining <laughs> to me. Right. What would be a resource that you'd recommend to the audience could be like, and we're going to link up your books, but like any books, videos, YouTube, podcasts, like what are some resources in any of these fields that you've talked on that you would recommend to people who are listeners? Specific resources or kind of in general, an idea of where to find a resource? Your call. I mean, we usually do specific resources and I link it up, but you can do general too, because people have done stuff like that before too. Absolutely. I would say find a mentor. And I would say look for a mentor anywhere that you have done a lot of personal growth and learning. Hmm. So if that's in college, go talk to a professor that you had that you were really connected with. If you've done you know, professional growth in a particular career field and you've really connected with a supervisor or someone who just came in to teach a training or something, look them up, give them a call or an email and say, hey, I really like this thing that we talked about or said. Can we talk about that more? Sure. Or someone who you just like look up to in whatever you know, hobby that you're in and say, man, you're doing something that's really cool. You're light years ahead of me. I want to learn from you or just talk. Just find something for me to do. I want to hang out. So I'd say a good resource that Love is that. specific to the, to the listener is find a mentor, someone who's doing something that you admire in a way that you respect and ask them to hang out and then just learn from them. And I can't link to that because it's going to be different for every single person. But yeah. there you go. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And like the way that you just worded that, like as an exercise almost, is the right way to approach these people. Whereas, like, you don't want to approach them and be like, hey, I love what you do. Can you teach me? Or can I yeah. come like work for you or something? Just like tell people that they're awesome and express that and let them know that. And Try to just see if you can bring value to them or go hang with them or something that's light where it's like, it's not a weight on them. It's just like respect. I'm showing respect. Love what you do. Can we go grab a coffee? I'll buy you lunch or whatever. People are really receptive to that. It's kind of crazy. Makes sense. You know what I mean? They love it. Exactly. Who who says no to free coffee? Really? (laughs) Monsters. That's who says no to free coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Animals. Exactly. (laughs) Evil. Last one is the easiest, Dave. And that's just where do people find some of these things that we talked about? Where do they keep up with you? Links. Cool. Check it out on DaveThinksTooMuch.com. I've got a public Facebook profile. That's just Dave Norman, author. I post there very infrequently. If you're interested in any of the books that I have talked about or keep up with the future books of mine, they're all available on Amazon. So just go to Amazon, plunk in Dave Norman following Josh. And that'll bring you to the Dave Norman author page. Here's another Dave Norman on Amazon. He writes a lot of Christian fiction. Good for him. That's not me. He doesn't matter. He doesn't matter. Exactly. Good for that, dude. Not me. I'm the Dave Norman who's done White River Junctions, Following Josh, and 501 Paintball Tips. That's my bag. And you're going to be able to get all of my future books through Amazon. Ideally through your local bookstore, because supporting your local brick and mortar supports the local writing and reading communities. That's the way to do it. I have not noticed my books on shelves in Portland lately, which kind of bums me out. But you can also always ask any bookstore, hey, could you get this book for me by Dave Norman? They'll be be able to get it for you. Sure, sure. And for people who are listening to this as a podcast, if you check out the show notes down below, you'll see a link to those different books, link to Dave's website. You can go to wakingupfromwork.com slash show notes if you're somewhere else and you want to catch up on these show notes. 
all those links will be available so you can go check that stuff out. So Dave, thank you for being on my podcast, man. I appreciate you hanging with me and talking about all of this different stuff that you've been up to. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on here. I feel really inspired by your questions, your take on things. This has been great. Dang, man. Thank you. <laughs> I always get pumped up from doing the podcast, like asking these questions. Like I, I ask them inherently based off of things that I'm usually trying to figure out about someone when I'm posed with what they've done. I like want to know these things. So that's why I ask them. So obviously I want to bring content to these wonderful people here, but usually it's selfish too, where I'm just like inquisitive and I want to know like, why does Swiss cheese have holes? And my wife will be like, who gives a shit? And I'm like, I just need to know. I need to know why this shit happens. I need to understand. It's that curiosity that's pulled me through every single article and book that I have ever written and ever will. I want to know. And if I want to know, that's good enough for me. 